You're listening to Devils and Dirtbags, Season 1, Child Molesting Priests, Episode 11, The Suspected Murderer, Part 4. It was early afternoon on a cold and gloomy midwinter day when I drove past the house of suspected murderer Richard Levine. His silver Honda sedan was in the driveway. In order to maintain the element of surprise and to prevent Levine from writing down my license plate number, I parked my vehicle on a side street. The convicted sex offender lives in a suburban neighborhood in Chicopee two and a half miles as the crow flies from the spot under the bridge where Danny Croto was murdered 47 years ago. From the outside, the former priest's house is nondescript, except for a bright orange and yellow portrait of a smiling sun, four feet wide, that Levine painted on his garage door. Walking up his driveway, I didn't have high hopes for an interview. Since his 1993 conviction, Springfield's most notorious defrocked priest had refused to answer questions from reporters. Back in 2003, he told the Boston Globe, right before running into his house, quote, My silence has been my salvation. Journalistically, though, since I'd written so much about this child-molesting priest, I needed to try to speak to him. The point wasn't to get a confession or to debate the facts of Danny's murder. I just wanted a glimpse into the life of a man responsible for so much pain and suffering. Even the briefest interaction, I thought, could be illuminating. I'd spent the previous four days in a Springfield courthouse, reading and photographing countless pages of court filings, affidavits, victim statements, police reports, and other records from lawsuits connected to the child-molesting priests I've discussed over the last ten episodes, and now I was about to meet the worst of the worst of them. Less than a minute after I rang his bell, Levine opened the door. I told him my name and identified myself as a reporter from Maine who grew up across the river in Indian Orchard. I was an old pal of his former comrade, Father X, I said. I told him I'd visited Father X last year and was wondering if he had time to answer some questions about the dude. Levine stood there, motionless, for several seconds. Was he still sentient, or had he become feeble-minded? Would you like to come in? He asked, stepping aside and opening his door wide. So there I was face-to-face with a son of a bitch who just about everyone believes murdered Danny Crodo and got away with it. 
I secretly tape-recorded and filmed my entire visit, but Massachusetts state law prohibits me from sharing the footage and audio with you. That said, I assure you that this is a verbatim recounting of our interaction. Would you like to sit for a minute? Sure, I said. Were you friends with Father X? We weren't friends, he said. More like acquaintances. He cleared a pile of magazines from the leather couch in front of the television set and gestured for me to sit. I watched as he grimaced and hobbled across the living room. You're limping, I said. Yes, I've got to have a hip replacement. My femur is all worn out. I've been waiting to hear from them for three weeks. His physical anguish was obvious as he lowered himself onto a parlor chair opposite the couch. Seeing him in pain made me feel a little bit better inside. Have you spoken to Father X recently? I asked him. I didn't even know he was still alive. I gave Levine an update on his former acquaintance, including X's current whereabouts, and a brief account of the sordid history that resulted in X's defrocking, followed by his civilian career as a substance abuse counselor. Levine's face was blank as he listened. I wondered, again, about the condition of his mental faculties. After all, he was 78 years old and could have dementia or Alzheimer's. On the other hand, Levine's stony stare could very well have been the stoic gaze of a sociopath, sizing up a reporter who rang his doorbell with questions about the past. So I just kept talking about Father X going into the story of his molestation of Jack Ballard and how X tried to rape the 14-year-old at St. Matthew's, I told Levine how Jack escaped by locking himself in the rectory bathroom and how he spent the entire night in fear until his parents arrived the next morning to pick him up. Oh, brother, Levine said, I don't have anything to do with the diocese or the priests. Do you go to Mass? I asked. No, I celebrate Mass here, right where you're sitting, on the couch. This is your altar? I pointed to the coffee table in front of me. Yeah, he said. I was explaining Father X's backstory to Levine because a recently published true crime book had suggested that if Levine hadn't killed Danny, then perhaps Father X did. There's zero proof to support this conspiracy theory, but I wanted to know if Levine thought Father X could have been Danny Croto's killer. Danny's name drew a reaction from Levine. Uh, I knew the Croto family, he said. In fact, I was a suspect in the murder. I know, I said. You're kind of famous for that. And I went to Boston for lie detector tests that cleared me completely. It was in Boston? I asked. I thought it was in Chicago. Oh, yeah, I went to Chicago, too, he said. Why did they fly you to Chicago? Uh, I guess there was some sort of expert there. And in both places, the lie detector was zero. The truth, of course, was very much different. Due to, quote, erratic and inconsistent responses, the examiner in Boston found it impossible to render an opinion on the priest's truthfulness. A week later, Levine and church lawyers flew to Chicago for two more polygraph tests. This time, though, the examiner gave Levine a passing grade, 
which cleared the priest in the eyes of his church bosses, but not in the minds of the cops, who still wanted to slap the cuffs on him. The diocese was sued and settled for millions of dollars, I reminded him. Upwards of 60 victims, I said. That's absurd, Levine responded, clearing his throat. You never molested any of those kids? He shook his head no. None of those kids that came forward? I asked. The, the brother of the, what was the name of that kid? He asked himself aloud. His memory seemed to be faltering. I could tell him the name of the victim he was trying to remember. In episodes two and three, I called him Mark Baxter, the brave teen who came forward and filed the complaint that resulted in Levine's arrest, which led to his eventual downfall. Levine was also trying to remember Mark's younger brother's name which was Jimmy. After 15 seconds or so, Levine remembered Jimmy's name, and, for the first time ever, he gave a reporter his version of the events that led to his arrest. Levine claimed the bust was the result of an enormous conspiracy, rigged by Bill Baxter. The father really wanted to run St. Joseph's Parish, Levine said. He had a big group of Catholics there who met every night, and he wanted to have more influence on our parish. And I said, no, no way. And that's when he asked me if I could take care of his son when he went into town. And I said, sure. So then the kid shit in his pants, and I tell him to take your clothes off and go take a shower. And then I put a towel around him and washed and dried the clothes and gave them back to him. That led to the police coming over and saying I had molested the child. I said, no. I told him what happened, so that's when I went to Chicago for the lie detector test. First of all, that's not when he went to Chicago. He went to Chicago in 1972 when he was the sole suspect in Danny's murder. The allegations by the Baxters and others occurred a couple decades later. The rest of his tale was bullshit as well, but I wasn't going to argue with him. Instead, I asked about Mark Baxter. Yeah, I took him to Arizona to see the Grand Canyon, Levine said. He alleged that you molested him during that trip, I said. No, no, that's not true. What's not true, I asked, that Mark alleged that or that you molested him? The ex-priest let out a terse laugh. There was nothing to do with Mark, Levine insisted. As a matter of fact, when I pled guilty to slapping his kid brother on the ass, after the court hearing, Mark was there and he says, I just wanted to tell you, I feel very badly about this. You're one of the nicest priests I've ever met, and nothing ever happened between us. What happened to my brother was made up by my dad. More lies, of course. It's highly unlikely he spoke to Mark. Criminals and their victims usually don't have a chance for courtroom chats. Besides, after pleading guilty, Levine was surrounded by his legal team as the media swarmed. The priest sprinted away from the pursuing mob. Levine ran and ran, and didn't look back. And there's more proof Mark didn't absolve the priest at the courthouse that day, seven months after the trial, following Levine's stay at St. Luke's Institute in Maryland, both Mark and Jimmy Baxter were a part of the first group of victims to sue the diocese for Levine's actions. That group received a settlement, the terms of which were not disclosed, and a formal apology from Bishop Marshall. 
What was St. Luke's like? I asked, curious about the seven months Levine spent at the clinic for problem priests. Boring, Levine said. It was a boring experience. I don't remember much of it. Just something I put out of my mind. When you got back from St. Luke's, that's when all the lawsuits started to pile up, I said. Yeah, he answered with a hint of indignation. And the diocese, rather than question them, said, okay. And I said, that's a hell of a thing. They should investigate. But as far as I know, they didn't. So you're saying all those cases they just flipped on, I said. Do you feel like you were abandoned by the church? Oh, yeah, Levine said. Are you resentful of that? I asked. No, he said. There's no resentment in me. By this point, I'd been speaking with Levine for about 15 minutes. I'd been looking around, absorbing the details of the living room. The vibe was like sitting in an old lady's parlor. And, to some extent, I was. From the looks of the furnishings and the color scheme, it appeared Levine hadn't redecorated the place since he inherited the house from his parents. So this 78-year-old suspected murderer was living in his dead mother's home, saying mass while sitting on her couch, surrounded by her vases, knickknacks, and trinkets, walking on her oriental rugs, cooking in her pots and pans, washing her dishes, silverware, and glasses, at night, closing the hideous curtains she'd hung, and sleeping on his dead parents' matrimonial bed, resting his head on their pillows, his body on their linens, using their wool blankets to stay warm. This was not the home of a man who'd once been considered debonair, a charismatic priest, and a snappy dresser. It was not the abode of an artist with a sense of style and a knack for interior design. Not the house of the fellow once known as a, quote, bishop's junk man because of his talent for rescuing valuable and artful objects from church dumpsters. And this, most definitely, wasn't a groovy lair like the A-frame he built so many years before with the free labor of altar boys that he also raped. This was a dark house, ugly and uncomfortable, the dwelling of a wicked man and, probably, a killer. I live on $845 a month, Levine said when I asked about his income. The money comes from an annuity he purchased many years ago. Tom Dowd sold it to me, he said. He'd been a priest and left the priesthood and went into insurance, and he came over one day and asked me if I wanted to buy an annuity. The money runs out in five years, when, and if, Levine turns 83. What will you do then? I asked. Hopefully I'll be dead, he said. This wasn't meant as a joke, but I couldn't help myself, and I laughed, loudly. But I don't know, Levine shrugged. My father lived until he was 93 my mother until she was 90. Turns out, Levine doesn't even actually own the house, despite his name being on the deed. His defense lawyer, Max Stern, who represented him for decades, is the real homeowner, Levine told me, having been given the property in lieu of huge legal fees. And Stern is allowing the former priest, Levine said, to stay there until he dies.
Uh, the income from the annuity is enough to pay the taxes and the groceries, Levine shrugged again. And once in a while, I'll sell a painting. Could you show me some of your paintings? I asked. About 20 minutes into my visit, the child molesting priest and I were standing in his bedroom. His dead parents' bedroom, actually. The bed is king-sized and was covered by a couple thick yellow wool blankets. For a second or two, he struggled to turn on a halogen floor lamp in order to view his paintings in the proper light. There you go. One, two, three, four, five, he said, pointing at different pieces of art hanging on the wall. The first four were landscapes of humdrum Massachusetts scenery. Technically competent, I suppose, but not unique or inspired. Mount Greylock, a mountain with a tower near Adams, a large Cape Cod beach scene, another smaller study of a forest near Greenfield, and a tiny pastoral landscape of a western mass town, the same town where the Baxters lived, and the cult, known as the community, is still located. That portrait there, I said, pointing at a painting in the corner depicting a black woman holding an infant. That, that looks like a play on the Virgin Mary, I said. I was in Haiti when I was in college, Levine said, helping out with the diocese to bring food for the poor. This woman was waiting in the line at the food distribution section. She turned and looked at me, and I said, My God, look at that face. So I asked if I could take her photograph. She hemmed and hawed a bit, and then finally she agreed, and I took her picture and then painted it. In my opinion, the portrait of the Haitian woman was the only even remotely interesting painting. It was deeper and more meaningful than the landscapes. I see you still have lots of religious objects, I said, gesturing at the statuary sitting on shelves and side tables. That crucifix behind you, he said, is from Kenya, made of ebony. And that's St. Peregrine, he pointed to one of the statues. He's the patron saint of travelers, and there's the Madonna. I noticed several photographs atop his bureau. Are any of those your parents, I asked? Yes, he answered, then picked up one of the photos, a formal portrait of a priest, and showed it to me. Did you know John Harrington? I knew of John Harrington, a pal of Father X's and a high-ranking church official during the 1970s and 80s, dead for over 20 years. He used to be chancellor of the diocese, Levine said. For Levine, that was a big deal, meaningful enough to earn his portrait a place of honor on the bureau, next to the portraits of his parents. I noticed the photo was inscribed. What's it say? I asked. Levine flipped on another light. Not wearing my glasses, he said, squinting and holding the card at a distance to read the words. Uh, Dear Richard, I wish more people would see the side of you that I have seen. Signed, John Harrington. He picked up another photo of a priest, this one of Father Timothy Campoli, the current pastor of Blessed Sacrament Parish in Greenfield. We talk on the phone, Levine said, every day. Still standing in the bedroom, I returned to the topic of Danny's murder. Do you remember going down to the crime scene the next day, walking along the river? I asked. Yeah, Levine said. And the police saw me. 
I was looking for some sort of clue, stupid me. Should have stayed away from the place. He laughed grimly. I was looking in the river, like I might find some article that was his, or I don't know what I was thinking. Do you remember what you were doing on the night Danny was murdered? I asked. I have no idea, Levine said. I think I might have read that the cops said that you said you were at your parents' house. Probably. Did you know instantly that you were a suspect? No. Levine kept nodding while he spoke, as if to reinforce the veracity of his claims. I gotta admit, though, his outright lies, denial, and revisionist history were starting to piss me off. When's the last time you thought of Danny Croto's murder? I asked. Oh, it's been years. Do you feel any guilt? I asked, referring to the dozens of allegations of child sexual assault. No, no, no. Your picture is on the sex offender registry, I said. Oh, yeah, he replied. Does anybody ever bother you? Once in a while. Then his landline rang. Excuse me, he said, and limped across the room to pick up the cordless phone. He squinted at the caller ID. Private he announced. I never answer. He put the cordless back in place and hobbled back towards me. I asked again about any negative impact caused by being listed on the sex offender registry. Uh, the neighbors probably have seen it, he said. This guy doesn't talk to me. He pointed at the brick house to the north, and neither does this one. He pointed to the house to the south. Neither one of your neighbors talk to you? I asked. What about the one across the street? Uh, they're nice, he said, and over there, he added, pointing diagonally, she's okay, but I don't pal around with the neighbors. I have my own world. Most of the time, I'm either painting or reading or writing. Did you ever write a book about your life? I asked. I know you once talked about that. I thought about it, Levine said. Then I decided, no, I'm not going to bother. When you hear the name Father X, I said. What do you think of? A uh, person I really wasn't fond of, he said. I always found him to be kind of uh, prissy. We were never friends. How much contact would you have with him? Were there gatherings of priests? I asked. Well, that's it. You know, when you have a big lunch with the diocese and I might be sitting across from him, and that's really the only contact with him. Did you ever have any argument with him? No. What about this theory of him being a murderer? I asked. Any thoughts on that? He stared at me blankly. I again mentioned the true crime book and explained the conspiracy theory that Father X could have been Danny's murderer. Really? He said, sounding surprised. So, do you remember Father X at all as a violent man? No, Levine said. You called him prissy. That's sort of the opposite of violent. Yeah, right. Well, I was uncomfortable with him. Levine paused. I found him 
Like I said, Prissy, did you know that he was gay? No, though I, I assumed he was, Levine said. Do you think there were a lot of gay priests back then? You know, that's never even entered my mind, that this guy may be or this guy might not be. I had very little to do with being in camaraderie with priests in the diocese. I've always been more of a lone wolf. I have my own world. I have my paintings. I have them all over the house. I'll show you a couple more over here. A half hour into our conversation, the studio tour continued and Levine showed more paintings. He brought me into the front parlor, filled with additional old lady furniture and stacks of paintings leaning against the walls, including lots and lots of castles. The ex-priest paints in oil and acrylic, never watercolors. I don't like watercolors, he said. Too sloppy. He showed me several more paintings. Still life with fruit, a couple of schooners, and yet even more castles, which appears to be an obsession, especially a certain Scottish castle that he's rendered from many different perspectives. He flew over that particular castle once in a helicopter during a month-long European vacation back in the late 1960s, just prior to reporting for duty at St. Catherine of Siena and Sixteen Acres, where, soon after, he'd befriend the Crodo family. Then Levine pulled out a framed canvas, two-foot by three-foot rectangle, that was done in a totally different style. Acrylic, lots of color, a candlelit dinner scene, a shorthand version of The Last Supper, with only two disciples, and one of the disciples is spellbound as Jesus radiates light. Meanwhile, the other disciple pours a glass of wine. I gave this painting to the bishop, Levine said, and he put it out on the steps of the chancery after a month, never even acknowledged receiving it. Which bishop did you give this to? I asked. The bishop that's there now, he said. Rosansky. Tell me, what is this painting? I asked. It's the Last Supper, he said. Two disciples and Jesus. Unnamed disciples? Yup. What is Jesus doing? Praying. Is he celebrating the first Mass? Eh, probably, he nodded. It's not authentic to the scripture at all. That's just something I like to do. Well, when did you give this to the bishop? Uh, a couple years ago. Did they call you and say, hey, we've put this on the front steps of the chancery, come and get it? No, Levine said. Some other priest called me and told me it was outside on the steps, and I said, hey, can you pick it up? And he did, and he gave it back to me. Earlier in the conversation, while discussing finances, Levine had said he occasionally sold his paintings. After showing me his work, he changed the story a bit. I've only sold one painting, he admitted. A guy came in one day, and he came into the dining room and saw the painting of the castle on the wall, and he said, where did you get that? And I said, I painted it. Really, he said? Do you have any others? And I showed him another one, just like it. And he says, will you take $700? And I say, yeah, okay. When was that? I asked. Maybe six or seven years ago. We made our way back to the living room via the kitchen, where I noticed a 12-pack of beer with a couple cans missing sitting on the floor in the corner. You drink Bud Light? I asked. No, he said. I got that for some friends that were coming over. Do you drink at all? No. Any vices? I don't drink. 
I don't smoke. I live a very simple life, I tell you. Some people say I live like a monk. Your life must have turned out much different than you thought it would, I said, back when you were a pastor. Oh, yeah. Do you have any regrets? Is there any way to sum up how you view your life? Well, there are probably some things I would have done differently, he said. When I was at St. Joseph's in Sharburn Falls, the pastor was a madman. Father Thrasher? I asked. His longtime pal and protector, Father Robert Thrasher, had been pastor when Levine showed up in Shelburne Falls in the late 1970s, and he's the one who stepped in and said masses at St. Joe's when Levine was arrested in 1992. No, he said, Klikoka. Klikoka, I said, never heard of him. He used to bring kids into his room, and I'd say, what the hell are they doing up there? Because they were up there for a long time. So I took the ladder and went up and peeked in, and they were naked in the bed with this guy. He must have been 80 years old. What? I said. What was his name again? Klikoka. Wow, I said. And that was in Shelburne Falls? Yeah. While you were an assistant? Yep. I'd never heard of this alleged child molesting priest before. Multiple kids with an 80-year-old priest? Was Levine telling the truth? I wanted more details, so I kept the conversation going. Okay, so you took a ladder, and you climbed up, and you witnessed him molesting children. Mm-hmm. In the rectory. Yes, Levine said. And then I went and called the bishop and told him, and he told me not to say anything to anybody about it. That was Bishop Weldon. Did you call the police? I never thought of going to the police. I thought the bishop would take care of that, but he didn't, though. And that guy stayed there as pastor for years. Do you think that happened a lot, that they covered up stuff like that? I have no idea. Here's another instance where Levine got the basic facts of his own life wrong. Father John Klikoka, I later confirmed, wasn't Levine's pastor at St. Joe's. Klikoka was his pastor at his first assignment over a decade earlier at Sacred Heart Parish in the town of East Hampton way back in 1966. A little research shows that Father Klikoka had been a popular and beloved pastor. In a written history of Sacred Heart, Klikoka was credited as shepherding the parish through the changes of the Vatican II era. He introduced folk mass and church services geared towards kids. According to the parish history, quote, Father Klikoka made a special hit with the parish schoolchildren, with whom he played ball on the school grounds on an almost daily basis. Klikoka served as pastor from the mid-1960s until he died from a heart attack in May 1974 at the age of 77. Bishop Weldon presided over Klikoka's funeral. Now let's just say, for the sake of discussion, that Levine was telling the truth about his former pastor. That would mean Bishop Weldon destroyed any secret files on Klikoka, including the allegation by Levine that Klikoka abused children, because the priest never appeared on Springfield's list of, quote, credibly accused clergy, which leads to the inevitable and unanswerable question. How many dozens or hundreds 
or thousands of priests got away with raping kids. Forty-five minutes into the visit, we were back in the living room where we started. I was ready to leave, but I was still curious about Levine celebrating Mass while sitting on his couch. How do you get the host and stuff? I asked. I don't, he said. I use ordinary bread. Do you use a chalice and, and wine? Yeah, he said. I have a chalice that was made for me when I was ordained. Beautiful thing. You want to see it? Of course I did. Levine brought out a worn wooden box and placed it on the table. Back when he was a young man, he traveled to France, where he met and befriended a silversmith. He opened the box and pulled out a silver goblet adorned with 13 tiny human figures around the base, the twelve apostles and their savior. He sent this as a gift on my ordination, Levine said. He made it. Levine handed me the chalice. So very surreal. I hadn't even expected to talk to the suspected murderer, let alone get into his house. And yet here I was, checking out his artwork and holding the heavy silver cup this evil bastard uses during his personal religious rituals. How often do you say Mass for yourself? Every Sunday, he said. Do you ever have anybody come over for Mass? No. Do you wear clerical garb while saying Mass? Levine opened a drawer and pulled out a purple and white scarf. I wear this stole, he said. That's it. Do you pray a lot? I asked. Yeah, I pray every day. Do you have any feelings about being defrocked? Is that something you think about at all? No. No, I don't. After 50 minutes, I'd had enough of the lying sociopath, so I thanked the ex-priest for his time and for showing me his artwork. When I pulled the door open, he followed me outside into the gray afternoon, which gave me the chance for one last question. What was the deal with the large orange and yellow sun painted on his garage? I tell people I don't have any children, he said, grinning but I have a son. Also adorning the garage was a fleur-de-lis and the word Perche, the name of an old French province to honor his family's French heritage. Until recently, he said, a large wooden eagle was mounted to the roof as part of his garage art installation. Years of western Massachusetts weather, however, eventually destroyed the bird, rotting it away. Levine said he made a replacement eagle, but needs a wider clamp to attach the new bird of prey to the roof. I carved it out of a piece of two-inch thick vinyl, Levine said. He's got both claws out, and one wing goes up and the other comes down. The claws and the edges of the wings are painted in gold leaf, and the beak is in gold leaf too, he nodded. So when the sun hits it, it glows. It'll last longer than you, I said, then added, it'll last longer than the house. And with that, I turned and walked down the driveway. Sitting in my car, I was relieved the interview was over. It had gone way better than expected, but I was still pissed at myself 
Why hadn't I asked more specific questions about Danny's murder, like about the incident when the priest brought a supposed detective to a breakfast meeting with a friend and the alleged cop proclaimed Levine innocent? I could have also confronted him with the fact that the victim's stories, which spanned decades, all had similar details, such as the long nightshirts and the back rubs. And another thing, why hadn't I been meaner? I could have punched the son of a bitch in the face, grabbed his precious painting of the Last Supper, and ran out the front door, and the old bastard never would have caught me. But, as I realized while talking with Father X, it's far easier to contemplate violent revenge against the younger versions of the child-molesting priests. These monsters of the Diocese of Springfield are all elderly men now, alone, fragile, broken old geezers, going senile. Several times during the visit, Levine struggled to remember a name. He'd get it, eventually, but one time he moaned and said, Oh God, what's the matter with my memory? Talking to the suspected murderer also made me angry simply because he was still alive, and so many of those he hurt and their loved ones are long dead. He's not plagued by guilt and doesn't even think of all those poor souls he tortured. Instead, he goes about his days painting and reading, and when he does remember the past, he views himself as the victim. I started my vehicle and circled the block for a last drive-by of his house before leaving town. He was back inside, invisible, hated and scorned by neighbors, broke, living alone in his dead parents' house, a total loser believed by many to be the killer of an innocent young man. Driving away, I thought of this ex-priest on a Sunday morning, sitting on his couch, celebrating a secret mass, believing his words could reach God. And I prayed, and I never pray anymore. I prayed that hell was a real place, and that Levine would be sentenced to eternal damnation. About 15 minutes after leaving Levine's house in Chicopee, I pulled into the parking lot in downtown Indian Orchard, where my family and other parishioners of St. Matthew's used to park for Mass. This parking lot was also used by Rattel's funeral parlor, where Danny Croto's wake and my dad's wake were both held. As I explained in Episode 9, Bishop Dupre closed and sold St. Matthew's back in 1999. All sales of former churches are regulated by the diocese to ensure a holy space isn't used for profane practices. Converting a church into a gay bar, for instance, or an abortion clinic wouldn't be allowed. Housing or offices or restaurants are common reuses of a closed church. Sometimes shuttered churches are bought by other congregations looking for a new holy space to call their own. Usually the purchasers are Christian. 
Occasionally, members of a splinter Catholic cult, so-called traditional Catholics, raise the cash to buy a closed church in order to celebrate Mass the old-fashioned way, in Latin, just like in the days before Vatican II changed how Catholics worship. St. Matthew's may be the only former Catholic church in the U.S. converted into a mosque. That's right, my childhood church is now a mosque, and I was there to meet the imam. St. Matthew's facade had always been bright white. Now the former church and rectory were painted light gray. A big sign hung over the front door that read, quote, the Turkish American Society of Western Massachusetts, Dianet Imam Bihari Mosque. Atop the steeple, the cross was gone, replaced with a simple golden adornment. I stared at the former rectory. This was the first time I'd been here since learning that Father X tried to rape 14-year-old Jack Ballard in an upstairs bedroom. I gazed at the second-floor windows, wondering how many horrible crimes were committed there in the living quarters by alleged holy men, and I wiped away the tears that were welling in my eyes. I entered the mosque through the side door and called out the name of the man I was supposed to meet. No answer. The place was empty so I removed my shoes and ventured further within. The transformation was remarkable. With the many rows of pews and the entire altar removed, the mosque seemed so much more spacious and well-lit, and cleaner, too. The carpet was a short and soft shag, also light gray, a color that never would have lasted in the Catholic days. Back then, the carpets were dark blue and industrial grade, since parishioners kept their shoes on, trudging in slush, snow, and dirt. The atmosphere of the mosque felt relaxed, not scary like the fire and brimstone church of my youth. The Muslims had painted over the giant and bloody crucifixion mural that used to dominate the wall above the altar. As a young boy, I was haunted by that graphic depiction of Christ nailed to the cross, surrounded by Roman centurions, disciples, and his grieving mother, the Virgin Mary. Also gone were the stations of the cross, depicting Jesus' many torments on his way to his death. Since I was alone, I decided to venture to the balcony that had once been the choir loft and home to St. Matthew's giant pipe organ. Now, according to a sign on the stairs, the loft was the worship area for the women of the mosque. The organ was long gone, of course, but the loft felt the same, until I turned and looked towards where the altar had been. Light streamed in through the stained glass windows, and thanks to the Muslims' renovations and new color scheme, the whole place glowed, even on a dreary, cloudy day. I don't recall seeing this effect when the Catholics owned this building, even when the sun was shining bright. The Amon was probably waiting for me next door in the rectory, but I had less than zero interest in entering that friggin' building. In the state I was in, it would be overwhelming. 
and I didn't think that I could be a gracious guest and keep my traps shut about the evil priest who once lived there, and there is no need to spoil the perceived grace of this Muslim community's spiritual home. So I put on my shoes and left. Later, I emailed my contact at the mosque to apologize for missing our meeting and expressed hope we'd get together if I ever visited Indian Orchard again. Back in Episode 9, you heard how the dirty, lying Bishop Dupre shut down St. Matthew's, much to my parents' dismay, then merged their parish with St. Al's, the French church, about 500 feet away, into a new parish called St. Jude's. According to the diocese, St. Matthew's was a wooden wreck of a building, an expensive albatross. St. Al's, on the other hand, was a rugged brick edifice that Dupre insisted was practically indestructible. Thus, St. Al's was saved and St. Matthew's was sold. On July 26, 2011, an intense thunderstorm descended on Main Street in Indian Orchard. Witnesses said the wind picked up and rain poured down, seemingly out of the blue. The focus of the storm's fury spared the mosque and skipped the former Grand Theater, an old cinema right next to St. Jude's that had been converted into a charismatic church for Spanish Christians. For several minutes, the thunderheads lingered directly above St. Jude's, formerly St. Al's, and Mother Nature unleashed a powerful downdraft called a microburst that hit the brick building like a wind bomb. A couple of weeks later, during Sunday Mass, water began dripping from the vaulted ceiling of St. Jude's. The parish had just paid for a new roof, so the pastor thought some shingles had blown off. Upon further inspection, though, the damage from the microburst was discovered. Two important support beams were cracked, and other beams had become detached from their fasteners. Plus, a series of roof trusses had shifted, and a load-bearing brick wall in the attic had collapsed. Two and a half months after the storm, the diocese decided to close the church. For over three years, the brick church remained empty while the diocese waited for their insurer to come up with some cash and for architects to draft a plan to repair the church. The structure would have to be upgraded to meet modern building codes with handicapped accessibility and a sprinkler system. The price tag for the renovation? $3.1 million. And the insurer only ponied up a million and a half. So the already cash-poor diocese made another unpopular yet pragmatic decision. They demolished St. Jude's and promised to build a small, energy-efficient chapel in its place. But then the bishop abandoned those plans. He announced that St. Jude's would be merged and the new parish would get the insurance money. So all the records for St. Matthew's and for St. Al's, including my baptismal certificate, were transferred to Our Lady of Sacred Heart in Springfield's Pine Point neighborhood. 
Our Lady of Sacred Heart is better known by the acronym we've used throughout this season of Devils and Dirtbags, OLSH. It took less than 10 minutes to drive from Indian Orchard to the busy section of Boston Road where Olsh is located. There is no reason for me to visit other than curiosity because I hadn't been near the place in over 30 years. This was where Danny Croto attended the parish school until he was murdered on April 14, 1972. Father X molested at least three young boys while stationed at the parish from 1970 until 1975, and there have been several other credible allegations made against priests who once called the parish home. Olsh is tainted, poisoned by the many sins of the evil holy men who destroyed the souls of children for their own sick gratification. It seems crazy that parishioners can still worship in the church, knowing about the child abuse that occurred within the supposedly sacred walls. A place of devils, deceit, and disgrace. Olsh has been stained by sins that can never be forgiven or forgotten. Perhaps the parish is cursed. Consider the events of July 3, 2011, a few weeks before the microburst that eventually closed St. Jude's. Father Paul Archambo, one of Olsh's parish priests, had been scheduled to celebrate Mass that morning at another local church. He never showed up. A search ensued. Eventually, the priest's brother went to the Olsh rectory to look for clues to his brother's whereabouts. Soon after, the body of the missing priest was found in a closet in his second-floor bedroom, dead by self-inflicted gunshot. In the days and months after his suicide, Father Archambeau was eulogized by his fellow priests as a charismatic and caring human. At his funeral, a close friend tried to come up with reasons why Archambeau took his own life. The dead priest had been bullied as a kid, it was said, and struggled with bouts of deep depression. The truth remained hidden for the next five years until the diocese could no longer keep it a secret. Turns out Archambeau pulled the trigger because he had been credibly accused of sexually assaulting a teenager for over four years. The rapes occurred at various places, including St. Patrick's Church in Chicopee, the priest's father's home in Northampton, and a shrine to the Blessed Virgin Mary in Vermont. To make matters worse, diocesan officials had known for years before his suicide that Archambeau had trouble maintaining boundaries with teenage boys. On May 29, 2016, the diocese finally added Archambeau's name to the list of child-molesting priests. The disclosure was required as part of a settlement with the teen victim's family in order to avoid a civil court trial. Good Catholics believe in heaven and hell, but not karma. Gotta wonder, though, how Springfield Catholics perceived the tribulations visited upon their diocese during the year 2011. In the 20 years since Levine's arrest, almost half the local parishes have been shut down, yet the diocese was still plagued by a shortage of priests and nuns. The number of devout Catholics attending church had also continued to drop, 
along with cash donations from the faithful. Add to that all the shame and guilt from the crimes of dozens of credibly accused priests, plus the over $15 million paid to their victims, and two of the diocese's most powerful and respected bishops, Dupre and Weldon, were now disgraced, viewed with disgust for their crimes against children and for protecting child-molesting priests. But that's not all. On the afternoon of the first day of June 2011, before the microburst and Archambault's suicide, a storm was brewing in western Massachusetts. First, thunder and lightning, then rain and hail, accompanied by strong winds, gusting 60 to 70 miles per hour, and growing stronger and stronger until it became a tornado. That's right, a tornado, which is extremely rare in New England. The twister first touched down around 417 in the town of Westfield, tearing up trees and damaging a school's roof. As the tornado traveled east, the funnel cloud grew wider and more vicious. The intensified storm quickly wrecked havoc on the city of West Springfield, tearing off roofs and the top floors of several triple-decker apartments. In a matter of minutes, almost 90 buildings in West Springfield were leveled, and two residents were dead. The first fatality was a mother trying to protect her daughter when their home collapsed. The second death occurred when a massive five-foot-wide oak tree toppled onto a moving car, killing the driver instantly. The tornado continued east, crossing the Connecticut River into downtown Springfield, roaring winds reaching speeds of 160 miles per hour spared nothing. Trees, cars, office buildings, restaurants, apartments, and single-family homes, all destroyed by the ferocious tornado which traveled eastward at 35 miles per hour, leaving a half-mile-wide swath of destruction to mark its deadly path. By 4.30 p.m., the tornado reached the campus of Cathedral High School, my alma mater, the school that had been Bishop Weldon's pride and joy. Luckily, most of the students had already left when the storm attacked. Those that remained took shelter under desks and bleachers, terrified as the powerful wind violently shook the building and shattered windows. Walls collapsed. Sections of roof disappeared as trees flew overhead and cars were tossed about like toys. And then, suddenly, all was quiet. The storm moved on and the students emerged unscathed, though an unidentified priest suffered a broken leg and dislocated shoulder. The tornado continued its destructive rampage for another 30 miles, hitting the 16 Acres neighborhood, then the town of Wilbraham, and then onward to Munson, then Brimfield, then Sturbridge, then Southbridge, and then finally the town of Charlton, where it dissipated around 5.30 p.m., an hour and ten minutes after the vortex had initially landed in Westfield, 39 miles away. In addition to the fatalities, Hundreds of people were injured, and over 500 were suddenly homeless. Damage estimates exceeded $150 million, and thousands and thousands of trees were gone, turning picturesque forests and neighborhoods into wastelands. 
For the students and faculty of Cathedral High, summer vacation started early. The disaster area was so dangerous that none of them were ever allowed back into the building. This religious educational institution, envisioned and built by the child-molesting Bishop Weldon, would eventually be demolished. Several years later, a modern replacement school was built for $55 million on the land where Cathedral once stood. Church officials tried to put a positive spin on the situation, saying Cathedral High had been too big and too expensive to maintain, especially considering the declining Catholic population. The new high school is called Pope Francis. By now, you'd think Catholics would have learned not to name buildings after church officials, especially since Pope Francis hasn't shown much leadership dealing with the sex scandals that still plague the church worldwide. Devils and Dirtbags is written and produced by me, Crash Berry. Theme song by Dave Gutter. Editorial assistance by Chris Busby and Brian Fitzgerald. Visit devilsanddirtbags.com for source material and top secret memos. And to learn about my books, movie, and my other journalism, or to send me an email. Next time on Devils and Dirtbags. Danny Croto's sister Kat and I were both graduates of Cathedral High School, class of 1986. We weren't pals, really, but we were friendly, and we took a basic journalism class together as sophomores. Thirty-three years later, I reached out to her for an interview, and she obliged, telling me how Danny's murder impacted her life and the lives of her parents and siblings. His murder, she said, was like a nuclear bomb. The murder of a loved one, she explained, is something you can never get over.